Hello and welcome to another episode of Downton Gabby. Today we are discussing episode seven of the final season. We are in the last home stretch of these last few episodes, so lots to discuss. I'm Shannon in Oakland. I'm Brandy in Los Angeles. And I'm Teresa in Brooklyn. Well, before we talk about this week's uh, action-packed episode, we need to talk about something else, people, and that is life after downtown. No, I'm not ready. Yes, we have to talk about it. We have to talk about it. And um, so we've given you a handy hashtag, L-A-D-A, hashtag Lada, life after downtown Abbey. Uh, so we can talk about this on Twitter. But also, we're thinking about what are we going to do after we, we record our podcast for the series finale, which will be on TV on March 6th. So first of all, we do plan to make more podcasts. So don't worry about that. We'll be still be seeing each other. But the other thing we want to do in the episode directly after the series finale is hear from you. Yes, you. And we would love to invite you to record a short little audio clip that we can play on the podcast about your favorite Downton moments and or any questions you might have for the three of us. So please uh, record a clip on your iPhone or anything. It doesn't matter. Don't worry about the quality. And we're going to give you a place to upload that to us. We would love it if you first said your first name, your Twitter handle, if you have one, and the city, state, or country that you are sending from. And please keep it to around a minute. So more information on that coming up, but we wanted to get you to start thinking about that. And we really look forward to hearing from you. The other thing is we still have some beautiful Downton Gabby classy drinking companions. If anybody still wants to buy one, and you can find that the link to that at downtongabby.tumblr.com and then just click on buy at the top and that will take you to uh, the sales site. And you can still use these while watching other shows, you know, it's not, it's not like Christmas pajamas you only wear at Christmas, you know, you can, right. You can remember Downton Gabby as you watch other shows with booze. The Downton Gabby spirit lives forever. <laughs> yeah. That's right. And we'll be seeing you, too, talking about some of our favorite shows coming up, too. So we will all be drinking together, talking about the good old days in Yorkshire and our beautiful future. Well, somebody who doesn't have a beautiful future is poor dead Charlie. Poor Charlie. Yeah. We hardly knew you. <laughs> I think that Charlie is like that red shirt crewman on Star Trek. He's yeah. Like, he just really did not have enough lines. To survive, if anyone was going to die, it was going to be the guy who had no lines. Right. Poor guy. He seemed like a jolly chap and a fine car racer. Not that fine, I guess. <laughs> oh, we're laughing through the pain. I mean, <laughs> that was really, it was quite a remarkable sequence, the entire car racing set piece and then all the reactions of the characters as they wondered who was dead. It was very emotional. Yeah, I thought it was really, really well shot. And, of course, Mary, the focus of, of the panic afterwards. And uh, her obvious relief that it wasn't Henry. And that's, I think, a normal response. She shouldn't feel bad about that. Yeah. Well, and I think we finally got to hear her say and the characters address that 
of course she's going to have an extreme reaction to this when the love of her life died in a car crash. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why it's taken this long to say. It's like everyone just wants to completely deny <laughs> her feelings about this. It seems like the coldest, most callous storyline. Yeah. And the only people who think it's cold and callous are we, the viewers, because in the internal world of Downton Abbey, everyone thinks she's being weird. And especially Tom. Yeah, that was getting to be ridiculous. It's like, no, she has legitimate reasons of why this stresses <laughs> her out. I mean, I know the Brits are all, you know, calm, cold demeanors and denial of everything, but this is real. We spent how many seasons? Two, three seasons in this love story of Matthew. So it's a big deal when he died. It's such a big deal when he died. And the whole idea of somebody dying in a car accident is a really big deal. And it's been hanging over the show. <sighs> I'm glad that this has all been resolved now, at least building up to this horrible Chekhov sports car thing that we were all dreading. <laughs> yes. A lot of Chekhov this season. <laughs> Yes, but it was a it was a really spectacular sequence, and I just have to say that Mary's outfit at the track. Oh my God, the dress! I was already like stunned by it, and then she turned around, and there were feathers on the back of the hat. I was like, Oh my God, I can't! This is too good. I know it was amazing. It was so cool. And someone on Twitter thought she looked like Ducky, you know, from Pretty in Pink. <laughs> I don't agree with that at all. Even though Listen, the photographic evidence is compelling. Brown glasses. They're just round glasses. She looked really great. On the other hand, Henry and his racing getup. Oh, Lord. We could have used a little dramatic license there. We didn't have to go historically accurate with those, like, leather penis helmets. <laughs> they were the worst. I also felt like they kind of looked like dancing sperm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what did you say, Brandy? The helmet is a real boner killer? A real boner killer. Yeah, right after he was being all dashing and stuff, and then it's like, oh, and there he is on the track, and you're like, oh. And then they have to take that awkward flying leap into their cars. Yeah. It was less sexy than I had imagined it was going to be. Yeah, it was very unsexy. And also, the cars seemed to be driving pretty slowly. I mean, I know that they showed us the speedometers hitting 90 or 100, but it's not what it looked like to me. Yeah. I did think Mr. Yum Yum looked pretty sexy, though, all, you know, depressed, smoking a cigarette, covered in ash. I mean... Oh, afterwards? Yeah, wouldn't you want to comfort that? I thought that was pretty hot. Yeah, that was pretty hot. That was pretty hot. But again, I, I can't even imagine the kind of trauma that Mary was going through when that happened. And I think that's why she just had to decide to cut it off. It's like she just can't she just can't go through that again. And that's fair. When Henry drunk dialed her. That's never a oh, good idea. Yeah. Well he did a booty call earlier and then he drunk dialed. He's a modern man. <laughs> Yeah, and then Tom's reaction to the whole thing was just more of his over-the-top getting too involved. Yeah, he's becoming like a pesky aunt. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why he and Violet are getting along so well these days. Right. I was hoping that him and the lady editor would have a little romance, but that seemed to fizzle out pretty fast. Well, this wasn't a great first intro to the crowd for her, right? Yeah. Like, Nobody <laughs> ever just gets to have a nice dinner. Yeah. It's true. No one has a nice dinner. No one has a nice day at the races. 
Yeah. I'm so sick of Tom constantly saying, well, I started off as the chauffeur. I mean, that's what I was like. We could do a drinking game of this. It's like every episode he mentions this to someone. It's like, we're past that. We don't need to mention it every time. It is a little weird because he seems to be feeling more self-conscious about it now than before he left. But I thought the whole thing of coming back was like realizing that this really is his family and where he fits. Right. Well, I think actually telling people that he used to be the chauffeur to me, shows more confidence because it's like, oh, yeah, you know, I used to be the chauffeur, <laughs> you know, as opposed to sort of trying to play that down. That could be. Or he has nothing else to say to anyone because he has no life. That could also be. He has no life. It is sad. all he's got. He's not doing anything with the state, really. Mary's got it handled. Mm-hmm. He's not dating anyone. Right. Mm-hmm. He's only allowed to see his child for 20 minutes a day. (laughs) Right. All he's got, you know, meeting a a fine young lady, he's like, did did I mention that I used to be the chauffeur? Uh, Yeah, actually, you you did already. Yeah, dude. Get some some moves. Yeah, get some game, Tom. Uh, Well, maybe maybe this lady editor is going to be something. She's cool. I mean, did you see her in the office with her spectacles and her cigarette? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, and she could be a real friend for Edith. I oh, know. I know. Although Twitter was joking that, of course, Edith's first real friend is on the payroll. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But Edith could have a friend and a husband by the end of this series. I know. So let's talk about the proposal. Let's talk about that snuggling. That was oh. pretty hot. <laughs> The two of them look like sex. Shoes off. I mean, come on. I didn't even know you could snuggle in evening wear. She's good at it, too. And who who would have thought that we would be going on and on about how sexy Edith is looking? I know. They did a good casting job. They have chemistry for days. Oh, yeah. They're great together. Question. Why has she not told him about fucking Marigold already? Well, I thought he was picking up what she was putting down when they were in that nursery, but now he seems to be clueless, so... Yeah, he was very clueless, like, oh, your ward? Okay. But that's a good step one, right? Like, okay, he doesn't mind having the kid come along, so that's already established. She needs to tell him before they get married. (laughs) There were a lot of people on Twitter last night pretty sure that somebody else was going to tell him before Edith ever got around to it. Like, oh, I don't know, Well, yes, because she didn't take her chance, and this is a soap opera. So, yes, absolutely, that's going to happen, and he's going to be, you know, more hurt about the lie than the truth of it, and it'll just be so aggravating because she has her chance and she doesn't trust him. And I just think, like, he seems to be accepting everything about her. He seems completely disinterested in the notion of, you know, virginal virtue or however you want to put it. I mean, and she's in her 30s. I don't think he thinks that she's never had a tryst before. Right. So I don't, you know, like the fact that there were consequences from one of those, I feel like he's man enough to deal with it. Yeah. Well, let's get serious. She's marrying down for him. He's marrying an Earl's daughter. And he's a, you know, he's like, I'm a penniless agent. It's true. And, yeah, she's the Earl's daughter, and she has her own magazine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. At this point, she doesn't even need the Earl's daughter money in order to support them. And they'll be just great no matter what. Unless it all comes crashing down because she's too scared to just tell them the truth. 
Well, she's thinking about it, so maybe she's thinking about how to tell him. So here's my other question. What is the thing with women being proposed to and then they have to think about it? <laughs> like, what? what is that? I mean, even Edith and Bertie, she's like, oh, that's wonderful. But, you know, I have to think about it, so I'll get back to you. Are you kidding me? What are you going to think about? Don't even pretend like you haven't been drawing Mrs. Edith Pelham in your notebook and heart, okay? <laughs> right. Yeah. We know that you want to marry him already. It's not like this is like, well, you know, Mary and the newspaper man from when she was resisting <laughs> yeah. Matthew, you know? Like, you know you want to marry him, just say yes. Yeah, I don't get it. It's not just it's not just Downton Abbey, to be fair. This is like a thing. It's a trope in all of these sort of costume dramas where the women go off to think about it. I guess it's like, you know, the, the one thing they have control over in the process. Well, that's a good point. That is a good point. Well, I just think it's bullshit. I, I just... Everybody should just be a little more Lady Rose about it. Yes! <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. Lady Rose is like, yes, fabulous, wonderful. <laughs> Let's tell everyone right now. Are we going to get to see them again? I kind of thought they would have popped up by now. I guess they're probably being saved for the Christmas special. Probably. I miss her. Oh, yeah. She's really great. Maybe Miss O'Brien will come back. Oh, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> he gets a postcard from India and just is like, peace out, everybody. My one true friend that I used to have. We've, we've buried the hatchet and I'm going to go have an adventure. Yeah, there you go. Well, you know, I still want him to go to Weimar Berlin, but I, you know, how many times can I say that? <laughs> just one more. Julian just one obviously more doesn't like the idea. One more time. Did I mention I used to be the chauffeur? <laughs> but this storyline i mean it's so uncomfortable beating thomas down and now now we can't even teach andy now this magical perfect teacher is gonna take over and you know make him you know a scholar that was such a frustrating moment it was like the time for everyone to sort of like realize that they had been wrong about him and nobody took their chance they just immediately switched their attentions to Andy's dilemma and I was like can anybody give Thomas some credit for how he just not only has been helping him but tried to cover up for him and yeah I just he brought the lemonade like come on people <laughs> what more can he do you know given that they all thought that Thomas and Andy were having sex together the fact that Andy can't read is like oh phew that's what it was you know what a relief what a relief but at least we know that he and Daisy share a hobby now that they can have if they get together of just berating themselves for being stupid in front of a group <laughs> and making shit awkward. Yeah, good for them. Um, but I was I was really very upset with that that whole cruelty of the 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 professor just stepping in and saying, "Okay, Thomas, we don't really need you anymore." Uh, see ya. Especially since it seems like there aren't really many qualifications to be a teacher, since Mosley gets to be one just because he knows a lot of stuff. I mean, I'm happy for him, but I was like, what is the process for teaching certification in this village? You basically have to win pub trivia. Yeah, to, exactly. To be able to... Well, at least your your um, prediction of flop sweat didn't come true, Brandy. That's so. true. He, he passed the test with flying colors. I am very happy about that. And his reaction was adorable. Yeah, he's really adorable. But will he be the cricket coach? <laughs> will he be defense against the dark arts? It was really nice seeing Daisy, you know, be nicer to Mrs. Patmore, who's been so patient with a her. A saint. She has been a fucking saint. 
Well, Mr. Mason wasn't in this episode, was he? Yeah, but Daisy still made a couple of side comments, and it seemed like at the end, Mrs. Patmore, you know, really kind of shook her by the shoulders and was like, everything's going to be okay. Right. And right. she seemed like she finally seemed to settle down a little bit, so I hope she can get over this, like, very childish attitude that she's had. So childish. You know who else was being a saint the last two episodes, of course, was Mrs. Hughes. <laughs> and I am shocked that this storyline actually ended in a way that made it worth watching those painful episodes. Oh, my God. This storyline was such a gift. Yeah, I loved in Tama Lorenzo's recap, which is basically they just kind of wrote their own dialogue from the episode. They summarize the storyline as Mrs. Hughes saying, Charlie, get in that goddamn kitchen and fix me a goddamn sandwich, which I thought was pretty hilarious. <laughs> and, you know, Mrs. Patmore once again to the rescue. See, this is back to the good old days where Mrs. Patmore can, can hatch a, a great scheme and Mrs. Hughes can be kind to Thomas and give him the little cheer up it'll get better speech and I think Carson has just been a distraction to everybody yeah a lot of people were at their best in this episode although Carson was not one of them <laughs> but maybe he can finally understand hey he sat on the couch <laughs> he that did he couch. did sit on the couch and he did actually go through with making dinner instead of just scrapping the whole thing so maybe there's hope for him yeah maybe we can train this old dog Man, I really wanted Mrs. Hughes to sit him down on that couch and dump him. <laughs> I mean, it'd be so great. Just, here, sit on the Grantham's couch and just leave him. I know this. I know that you'll never love me as much as you love Lord Grantham, so this is a proper place to tell you it's not working out. <laughs> Do you think Carson is going to not like the puppy because he knows that he'll be sharing Lord Grantham's attentions with the puppy? <laughs> I'm starting to feel a little bit like this whole series was actually about Carson all along. Mm. I mean, that, that theme of change, you know, who's been forced to change more than Carson against his will. I mean, he freely uses a telephone these days, so. He does. He does use a telephone. I bet he uses a toaster. <laughs> wow. I want a montage of all of the, like, electronic implements that have been against him over the last years season one was the light bulb wasn't it <laughs> light bulb yeah they used to have gas in the kitchen right and then yeah the telephone that electric mixer i mean oh yeah <laughs> you know in one of the montages after the episode on sunday night they did have something like that and they had the scene where the, they find gwen's typewriter and he walks into the, the room with the table with the typewriter sitting on it. And he says, stand back, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> like it's a bomb. Yeah, oh, great. Carson. Well, I bet him and Spratt are best friends, you know, Spratt and his stamp collection. Oh, you know you love it when they show Spratt. I don't know why you pretend like you don't. No, no, I love <laughs> Spratt. I love every scene with Spratt. I hate Denker, but I love Spratt. You know, that's his leisure time, and, and you know that the prop guys probably spent a long time putting together an authentic <laughs> period stamp collection, and they really want to show it a few more times before the end of the series. But what will Spratt do while the lady is away? I mean, that's a lot of time for stamps. Too much time for stamps. He's just going to be dancing around in his underwear to the hot <laughs> tunes from the 1920s. I don't know what he's going to do. 
Full sprat risky business. <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, I'm so happy that he gets a break from Denker. I really hope that someone pushes Denker off the deck of that ship because <laughs> oh, that's probably inevitable. She'll end up hustling someone in, you know, down below decks and thrown into a furnace. One card hustle too many. Yeah, that'll be the end of her. Well, I know, Brandy, you were really nervous that something would happen to that ship. And um, I just want to offer thanks to our Twitter friend, Brinsonian, who informed us that the SS Paris, uh, which is the ship the Dowager is on, doesn't sink till 1939. So, okay, great. <laughs> you know, that's the kind of factoid that I love so much. So thank you. Well, the sh I mean, these ships always sink, right? So Eventually, I'm glad yeah. we're at least in a, a safe zone. I also, I don't think that Julian would, would do her in off camera. I mean, we know Maggie Smith is his muse. But he did give her quite a good send off. First she goes and cuts some bitch down the side. <laughs> oh, the scene was incredible. Then she, then she delivers a bitch puppy to Lord Graham. <laughs> you know, I mean, she was like, I'm queen bitch, basically, in this episode, which I love. Well, even, even cooler, someone was, um, Theorizing that she may be paying a booty call to Igor in France, <laughs> which hadn't even occurred to me, but how great would that be? Oh, yeah. I would love to see him again before the end. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I would just love to see the Dowager in France. I know we never actually get to see any of these, you know, overseas adventures, so we won't, but I can dream of seeing her in France. Oh, God. Dealing with the French people that insist yes. on being in the country with her. Yeah. That's a travel show I would watch, for sure. <laughs> What's her theory? She's going to hate the French so much that coming back to Cora is going to be no big deal. Yeah. Yeah. That's her entire plan. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, okay, let's talk about her and Mrs. Crookshank, because this is probably my favorite part of the whole episode, is the conversation that they had over that wedding invitation. I mean, this woman just does not know what she's dealing with. She couldn't be more in over her head. Like, how did she think that sending that wedding invitation was going to, like, make everything play out in her way? I, Girl, no. 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 Serious miscalculation. Um, and the Violet's conversation with her. First of all, is she living in that house? Is that proper for her to be living there before the wedding? It's a little strange. It is, right? Like, there's no female chaperone that I know of. Oh, you guys, you're so uptight. It's the 20s now. <laughs> Fine. We just don't want scandal, okay? We don't want scandal. Um, but there were so many amazing, amazing quotes. I'd feel sorry for Larry if I didn't dislike him so much. I mean, that was great. Not if I see you first. But I love that she went to defend Isabel. Oh, yeah. You know, she's like, you know what? I'm going to get to the bottom of this sneaky bitch for you and defend you. And that was great. Well, we're back to Isabel and Violet being besties, which is how I think the world should be. And Isabel finally was very gracious about the hospital stuff and basically said what Violet needed to hear about the way it all went down. So I feel like they can move past that. Yeah. Yeah, that was, that was really classy on both their parts. And, you know, if I were Isabel, I would just go save Dickie from that pit of hell mm -hmm. that's going on at his house just get him out of there mm -hmm. i mean like like fuck off larry take the house go just promise we never have to see your face again 
Yeah, you know that Dickie doesn't care about that stuff either, so I feel like at this point it's just getting over some weird bit of pride about having to go back on the decision she made or something. Yeah. I've never really fully understood her sense of reason on this particular issue, so hopefully now that she sees, like, really, there is no redemption for Larry and he's not even worth having in Dickie's life, that she'll you know, realize that they're meant to be together. So we're really hoping for Dicko Bell reunion. Yeah, that would be the wedding I would most like the show to end on. (laughs) (laughs) It would be great. Edith and Bertie can elope somewhere. I want to see Isabel (laughs) and Dickie be happy together. (laughs) That would be really, really great. So what's happening with Mrs. Patmore's um, bed and breakfast? And why is this guy spying on her? That was so strange. (laughs) Why would someone be spying on the bed and breakfast? (laughs) Yeah, this, you lost me on this one. I have no idea. I I mean, I assume we'll find out next week, but that was just like the most random little thing to throw in. (laughs) Yeah. What is this, like a spy from a rival B&B who heard about the breakfast (laughs) or something? I think Sergeant Willis (laughs) is behind it. Personally. Oh, I'm sure oh we'll see God. him again before the end. <laughs> He's going to get to the bottom of it. Oh, man, that was just really weird. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I couldn't tell if there was like a weird editing thing that happened. You know, sometimes the episodes get recut for the <laughs> U.S. time slots. And I was like, right. was there something they had to like move to the next episode that would have explained <laughs> why we were provided the scene of just like a dude <laughs> spying on Mrs. Padmore? I don't know. I don't know. In, in, nothing but intrigue. Nothing but intrigue. The and then we've got the whole coil story. Still, you know, that could have disappeared. I mean, it's not even a story. We've never Jeez. seen this guy. <laughs> I'm speculating whether he could show up and be like the same melty face con artist from season <laughs> two. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. Although I assume he must be very dashingly good looking to get all of these women to be stealing jewels for him. So I guess that doesn't work. But if we're not even going to get to see how dashingly good looking he is, can we just let this die? Like it came up out of nowhere on this episode. And honestly, if they would have never mentioned it again, I don't think anyone would have even noticed. I think it's just becoming clear that Baxter and Mosley have nothing else to talk about. <sighs> Maybe. Yeah, that that romance is dead. I did really like the exchange between Baxter and Anna, where Baxter congratulated her. Yeah. You know, there was so much bad blood between them because of the whole Mr. Green thing. Yeah. So it's kind of nice to see them being kind of sweet to each other. Because they're they're both nice people and you want them to be friends. We want everyone to have a friend, including Thomas. <laughs> including Thomas. Yeah. And Anna could really use a true friend who's like on her own level. Right. So I, yeah. I do think that that was nice. So did you guys see this thing that Hillary sent us on um, Facebook? So hi ladies, this is too long for Twitter. I've been thinking about the differences between Tom Branson and Thomas Barrow. I don't think it's a coincidence that Julian gave them similar names. They're kind of two sides of the same coin. Tom got lucky because Sybil fell in love with him and is thriving because he's been able to put aside his politics and philosophical issues with the Crawley's way of life, which doesn't always ring true. In reality, I think he would have never come back from America. Barrow, on the other hand, is still stuck on this idea of staying in service, even though times are changing and he can see his fellow servants moving on. He doesn't have a lot of options, but generally 
is because he's made bad choices in the past. It's a classic Dickensian contrast. And I agree with you that it would be a really crappy thing for Julian to have him commit suicide for all the reasons you mentioned, but I'm worried that that's what's going to happen with him. The only possible good outcome I can see for him is becoming Edith and Bertie's butler. Maybe? Question mark? This is really interesting. Thank you, Hillary, for this. I mean, I think the other issue with Thomas, of course, is that he's gay. And that just mm -hmm. makes everything a thousand times more difficult for him. Right. Like Tom can put aside his political beliefs, but Thomas can't put aside his sexuality. Mm. I mean, that's who he is. I mean, he's, he's suppressed it as much as he can, but he can't really escape it. Well, he wouldn't be the first man that pretended to be straight to get on in the world, especially at that mm -hmm. time. Right. I wonder at this point if everyone didn't already know if he would try to just play straight because he seems kind of that desperate for um, inclusion at this point. Well, do you think they're going to put it in his reference letter? <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I'm serious. Like, is he just going to, from this point forward, play straight once he leaves this house? That's a great question. I think he might try because certainly he hasn't found acceptance with people who know the truth about him. Part of the tragedy of Thomas is that he really does still believe that he can succeed at this. You know, like he's, I've given my whole life to service and he really feels like he could be rewarded for it if it just, things went his way. Well, do you see that, you know, what Hillary's saying, that they're a Dickensian contrast? They have these similar names. I mean, do you see them as two sides of the same coin? I think you can make that comparison. I don't know that Julian set out to make that with the names. You know, we've also had multiple people named Charlie or Henry over the years. Right. So I think he's just being a little realistic about the fact that there are only so many British dudes' names. <laughs> uh, but I think, of course, like you can draw that parallel between someone who is who has made it out of service and someone who probably should be trying to make it out of service but isn't trying to. And, you know, the other thing is Thomas has always been pretty forward-thinking around class issues from season one. So I also don't know why he has clung to the idea of service as his mission in life when he's clearly understood the realities of how servants are taken advantage of. I mean, I think just because he failed, you know, he failed at being a soldier, he failed when he tried to open a shop, I think that you know, he was really wounded by those experiences in a way that maybe the show hasn't properly explored, but it's there for me. Like, I remember how, you know, he had got himself shot in the hand so he wouldn't have to still be a soldier. You know, this is the only, the only place where he's ever felt safe, even though he also feels persecuted there. I think that's exactly it, Brandy. I mean, we've seen him try other things and he's failed. And I think he is scared to try anything else. Unfortunately, Hillary, I don't think he could become Edith and Bertie's butler because they're not really going to have that much money. <laughs> but I, I, keep, I keep saying that he should become Bertie's cousin's butler, or under-butler, if you know what I mean, um, <laughs> in Tangier. I think they could set him up with something, right? Somebody has these connections. This is the thing that bothers me. Like They want to be downsizing their staff, but they don't seem to be trying to help anybody get a new position. Right. Well, I think they're strongly hinting that he will end up with Mary in whatever house she sets up. But this is her house. She's not going to set up a new house. Well, Carson's not going to live forever. That's true. 
That's true. I mean, I do still think somebody's going to die, so that could solve a lot of people's problems if it's Carson. <laughs> oh, God. Here's hoping. From the previews for next week, where Henry calls Mary a grubby little gold digger, <laughs> and Edith says, I'm not as simple as I used to be, I think there will be very juicy stuff for the Crawley sisters. I'm really looking forward to this. I do feel like this episode was definitely a step up from last week as far as feeling like we're going to get a lot of action and excitement in the final hours. I agree. And also the next episode, um, the final episode of the quote-unquote regular season is 90 minutes, according to the PBS schedule. And then the final episode, known as the Christmas special, on March 6th, it's two hours. So we got a lot to go still, even though it's only two episodes. Right, and there's no episode on the night of the Oscars, the 28th, correct? Correct. There, There's a more manners of Downton Abbey with our friend, the historian Alistair Bruce, who I know everyone's been clamoring for, so there you go. <laughs> Alistair! Alistair! Awesome. All right, well, I know we all have the same one fabulous thing, which is the wonderful Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies. Oh my god, it's so good, it's so good, it's so good, it's so good! I thought I was going to enjoy it, and I was just like, this works so much better than it should, so much better than I thought it would. Like, it is a damn good movie. I was thinking about how, like, Galaxy Quest is actually the best Star Trek movie. Uh-huh. Because it it sort of plays with the idea of Star Trek, but really it sort of throws it out there in a different direction. And I'm not going to say this is the best version of Pride and Prejudice because nothing will ever be better than the <laughs> Colin Firth version. But it is fucking good. I do think it might be the best zombie comedy I've ever seen, though, <laughs> which is a pretty weirdly large genre. It was so awesome giving the Bennett sisters weapons. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the genius of it. They are such vivacious characters, but to make them badasses, I couldn't believe how seamlessly these two things worked well together and strengthened both Pride and Prejudice, the original text, and zombie genre. There is a way, and I think because I thought this is what it was going to be, this is why I thought the movie wouldn't be so good. I thought it would be like a traditional zombie movie where it's like, what is this undead thing that's coming towards me? And everyone would be like in their first encounter with zombies. But the fact that everyone has already been trained in combat because zombies are just part of life, and they compare being trained in combat with being trained in like dance. (laughs) The womanly arts. And languages. And it's just... Yes, the womanly arts and the deadly arts. I mean, that was such a brilliant choice on the part of the people adapting this for this genre. It makes the whole world more interesting. It allows for incredibly fun fight scenes. And just everyone has, every character has this world as a part of their personality already. So all the work is done and you just go forward with this incredibly fun adventure. And the love storyline works even better with life or death on the line too. Absolutely. And that scene, um, you know, the scene where Lizzie Bennett and Mr. Darcy are fighting, but this one, they're actually fighting with weapons. (laughs) I couldn't believe how much better it made. And it upped the sexual tension. It was like everything. And it was like, you know, maybe I like this scene better now. I don't know. It was so good. I don't want to give away all the things that they do that are fun that plays with the genre, both genres. 
but it's just so well cast. Matt Smith is absolutely hilarious in it. Oh my God. He's the best Mr. Collins. <laughs> so funny as Mr. Collins. And it was just really fun. I know we've poked fun at Lily James and how she will, you know, never wear jeans in a roll and will always wear a corset. But this character was different because she got to be so feisty and so um, serious in certain ways where we've only seen her in sort of bubbly things. At least I, I have. This was my favorite role of hers. It was nice to not see her so giggly and kind of ditzy. She was strong. She was in control. One of the one of my favorite things about the film is it gives the Bennett sisters and really a lot of the women in the film a lot more agency. Mm -hmm. Because they are armed and trained in swordcraft, <laughs> they have this power that you don't usually see in these period dramas. You know, Lizzie Bennett has her wit and, you know, mm -hmm. all that, but she she doesn't have the kind of like I can take care of myself uh sort of air about her along with her sisters frankly even mary even mary's wielding yeah. a weapon <laughs> even mary they're so much stronger yeah yeah it's it's great and uh it's sly and uh very feminist of course you may have gathered um and and really lets you see the original text in a kind of a new way which is really fun and you get to see Mr. Darcy in his, like, full-length leather vampire <laughs> zombie hunter coat the whole time. I mean... That was nice. It's just great. Um, and I, I also was a little annoyed to see that it's not doing very well in the theater because, you know, Deadpool made $120 million this weekend or something, and everyone's like, ooh, how fun, uh, this fun comedy where, you know, they're doing something crazy with the genre. And I was like, how are you all sleeping on Pride and Prejudice and Zombies if this is what you want? So we're here to tell you all, go see it. Go see it. And tell everybody to go see it. I'll probably see it again. Yeah, take anybody in your life. Your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your mom, your dad, whatever. Your mom will love this movie. Your dad will love this movie. It's the right mix of action and Jane Austen lovely story. You know, it's just a great, great mix. It's one of the most fun movies I've gone to all year. I also want to add that I am not a horror movie fan, and uh, I thought this movie was totally fine. There were actually kids there, like a father brought two of his daughters, which I thought was, like, perfect. Um, there's some, like, zombie faces, you know, melting like zombie faces do, but nothing really jumps out at you. It's it's, it's mild. Yeah, your, your average 9- or 10-year-old could probably handle it who's, you know, I don't know, seen... A Star Wars movie, they can probably handle this. Super fun. So go see that. It'll You'll get your petticoats in before the next episode of Downton. <laughs> All right. Thank you for listening to another episode of Downton Gabby. Um, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Downton Gabby and also on Tumblr at DowntonGabby.tumblr.com. Please send us your audio recordings of your questions and favorite moments. We are so looking forward to receiving those. And we will see you next week. I finished crying in the instant that you left And I can't remember where or when or how And I banished every memory you and I had ever made When you touch me like this And you hold me like that I just have to admit it's so